Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. This episode is both the last recording that we're doing in 2023. We're doing this on December 31st, and this will be the first episode of 2024. So happy new year. Welcome to 2024. Hope it's a good one. We were... Uh, doing a little reflecting on this past year. And I have to say, you know, despite how tricky the world can be and how many ups and downs there can be, I'm pretty grateful for the year that you and I had. And we've done some pretty cool things. I think we got some pretty cool ideas specifically for the pod coming in the new year. Let's get into this macaroonies, the last macaroonies of 2023. All right, the first movie we saw, we had a Boxing Day matinee viewing of The Iron Claw, a 2023 drama sport biography movie directed and written by Sean Durkin and starring Zac Efron as Kevin Von Erich, Jeremy Allen White as Carrie Von Erich, Harris Dickinson as David Von Erich, Maura Tierney as Doris Von Erich, Holt McCallany as Fritz Von Erich, Stanley Simons as Mike Von Erich, and Lily James as Pam. Von Erich. <laughs> Synopsis. The true story of the inseparable Von Erich brothers who made history in the intensely competitive world of professional wrestling in the early 1980s. What did you think of The Iron Claw? It's so funny our journey to seeing this movie because you and I had no interest in seeing it. We watched the first trailer because typically if A24 drops a new trailer, we're watching it. And we are kind of simps for A24. We'll give most A24 things a try doesn't mean we'll like auto like them yeah but we'll usually be like ah if it's a 24 we'll give it a go but i frankly was like nah yeah and we are not wrestling guys so <laughs> not sports people in general yeah Ew. so we were not interested but then we were starting to see that some of our movie buds particularly some of our most trusted movie buds were really liking this film and rating it quite high and talking about the experience and what it's all and and that the fact that it's kind of speaking our language like it's about grief and complicated dad stuff which is basically our bread and butter yeah i mean one of the like cinchers was we were we were at gremlins <laughs> at, the, at the theater and um our friend nicole who was on the not your final girl episode I was going to speak at the start of the film and just like leaned ahead in and said, saw the iron claw today. And then we're like, oh, was it good? And then just mimed tears. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, OK, wow, tears. And then what really kind of sealed the deal is Sean Durkin's A24 letter. I love this because I am so much a, a words person and I would rather if I have the option, read something than watch like a video essay on it or watch like. A Vanity Fair interview, which I will watch, but those are long. Yes. I like this like 
sitting down and thoughtfully writing a letter. And it's not just A24 that's doing it, but they're doing it pretty frequently. So I just have a snippet, the snippet that like I read to you and we were like, we got to go see this movie. So this is from Sean Durkin's letter. He says, quote, although there is unthinkable loss within the Von Erich family, the Iron Claw is not about grief and pain. It's about the absence of grief and what can happen when people refuse to examine their pain. Their family story is a small piece of American history, but it digs up the bedrock of a very American and extremely misguided expression of masculinity, a generational mindset that has harmed our culture in ways we are only just beginning to understand. Part family drama, part gothic horror, part sports movie, The Iron Claw is a true Greek tragedy set in the American heartland. It is a story about family, gods and monsters, fathers and sons. It is a celebration of brotherhood. It is about finding love and learning to love yourself for who you are. It is about battling against the narrow idea of what it means to be a man. It is about chasing glory and the illusions of success. It is about generational strife and questioning the lens with which we are conditioned to see the world in order to find a hopeful new future. It's like, oh, so this was made for us. Yeah, it was a letter to us. (laughs) Dear Bad Dad, Rad Dad. Yes. Here is why you should watch my wrestling movie. Um, and true to what Nicole mimed to us at Gremlins, true to this letter, I have not cried this much in a theater in a while. And uh, granted, we cry in theaters a lot, but I haven't cried this much in a theater. Yeah, I I think that I kind of... Since after Sun, probably. Yeah, I think I kind of forgot what it's like to actively sob in the movie theater. Yeah, to not just like tear up, to not just cry, but to be like ugly crying. And in these days, hopefully, leading up to us seeing all of us strangers, (laughs) this was a good reminder of we should bring our own Kleenex to the movie theater. Yes. I thought I might cry, but I didn't think I was going to sob. Yeah. Which I did profusely. Yes. Um, I, uh, I found this movie incredibly powerful. And, you know, not unlike... Nicole's post movie watching experience when you, with the other day we were doing our notes to prepare for the show and you walked in because you had heard me from your office sniffling and kind of like coughing a little bit and you're like oh man is he getting sick and you walked in and you're like hey are, are you okay are you getting sick and I'm just like, nope just crying just doing my iron claw notes and crying again um, and then you kind of started crying as you told me you were crying crying's good and just the more you're human and the more I sat with this movie, that's just what it elicited. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting thing, this film, because the film as its own entity, I think, is incredible. I think it gets kind of complicated when you start thinking about real people's stories, because Kevin Von Erich, who is alive, has kind of gone back and forth about how he feels about the movie So in some interviews, he's really said he disagrees with the way his dad is portrayed Mm. and says, like, I I loved him deeply. I trusted him. Um, He was a good man. Like he he, in an interview, he said that he feels the film makes his dad come off, quote, pretty rank when he was a, quote, good man. Um, But then there's other interviews where he says. Like. That uh, Sean Durkin had told him when he was making the movie, he had told Kevin Von Erich everything I put in the movie is coming out of something that you have said that I've heard you say. And, and there was an interview with him, like a video interview on a, on a red carpet or something like that, where he had finally seen the movie and he said, you know, there was just total trust, total devotion. Um, He thought that everybody played everybody really well. And then in that interview, he said, quote, things were hard, but life is tough. (laughs) So I, I don't know. I think it's complicated because the film really portrays, Kevin feeling a particular way, particularly near the end of the film. And I don't know that that's true of the real Kevin Von Erich. Mm. So this is the struggle with biopics. hundred percent. Right. Because I think Sean Durkin has made an incredibly beautiful film. That's really personal to him because he, he followed the Von Erichs. He, he liked wrestling. He was really impacted by their story and the loss in their, their story. And he's created a narrative out of that that explores the things that he wrote about in his letter, which I read a portion of that doesn't necessarily mean that's how any of the Von Erichs felt about it. It's Mm -hmm. kind of his interpretation of their story, which I think is a beautiful thing, but it also is ethically complicated. Yeah. 
the other complicated part of it is there's a whole brother that isn't in the film. Mm-hmm. And he, um, Sean Durkin spoke about how he just felt like putting that brother in the film was, was impacting the narrative of the film. And it was becoming too traumatic. It's already pretty traumatic. Mm-hmm. But then there's an ethical question too of you're telling this story and the story that you very clearly says about brotherhood and yet you've omitted one of the brothers. So yeah, just that complication between biography, truth and narrative. And I mean, I I very much respect because I've talked about this a ton on the show about, I don't like when biopics try to get it all correct or when biographies try to get it all accurate because that's literally impossible but I still feel complicated about it. I still feel complicated about this like depiction of real stories that are narrative that are made into narrative. Well, and it's it starts becoming complicated when when does the film when is the film trying to service real life and when is real life trying to service the film? And at the end of the day, you're trying to make a good movie but you're making calls like not including one of the siblings in this prolific family to make the movie quote unquote better. And I've also heard, so so I just want to be clear. I really, really liked this movie. <laughs> like I liked it a lot. Yeah. Just um, something to be aware of and critical of. And, and something else that I'm going to mention, which had no bearing on the way I watched it, but I've read some reviews from people who are well-versed in wrestling that like the timeline has been changed. Hmm. Like there's events that happen out of order because it serves the narrative better. Right. Yeah. To like, have this change in who's going for the national title after this event when maybe that's not how it happened in real life and something like the accuracy of that that the like wrestling history um which i could see if you're like a big wrestling fan and you went to it that that would be quite distracting yes and ultimately i don't necessarily think that sean durkin made this movie for people who love wrestling or even people who are familiar with the von erics and i like i I like a film that is using this thing to explore something else. Mm-hmm. I just get so muddied about the ethics of it all when it's real people. But then you ask the question, you know, and this comes up with like, say, a May, December. So would it have been equally unethical to just be inspired by that story, but make it a, they're not the Von Erics, mm-hmm. but then very clearly they are. Yeah. I don't know. There's no easy answer. I think you can really tell that Sean Durkin cares about this family and cares about this story. And I think it's I think it's his story. I think he's telling something about what he thinks about masculinity and about family and about brothers and fathers and generational stuff. And I think he does that absolutely beautifully. Mm-hmm. Especially if I'm just like it's a narrativization of some real events. Yeah. Cause I think the thing that works the most for me is just the emotional core and those complicated and beautiful relationships between people. And the exploration of that, I think is complex, beautiful and really well captured and really well written and assembled for even, you know, a movie that's spanning years and decades it's easy to follow and it's easy to pick up where certain characters are going. And then I think that it was also a smart choice to focus this through sort of Kevin's lens. Mm -hmm. I want to note that Zac Efron is amazing in this and he is an actor who I've admittedly written off just because I'm just like, this is, we used to really like 17 again. Yeah. I don't know how, how well it would hold up now, (laughs) but like, he was just like high school musical guy that all the girls swooned over when I was in high school. And then he's just like, this guy is just getting bigger and bigger in terms of body mass. <laughs> and he's just like a really good looking ripped dude. But he has some really serious acting chops. And I feel like this is like the peak of his acting powers. And yeah, there's a lot of um, Twitter campaigns for him to get an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised he didn't get a Golden Globey nomination. But I I think that he is so strong here and he is basically holding this movie on his shoulders as we follow him through 
the timeline of the Von Erichs. And he delivers a line at the end of the movie that I can't even think about without getting emotional. It's it's really it's really really impressive. I mean, everybody's impressive in this movie. I mean, this is um, you know, the portion of this film where I just I, I cried throughout the film, but when I started sobbing and didn't stop, it does a thing which I so appreciate in movies based on real people or real events, which is completely breaking breaking from reality. Hmm. And being okay with that, mm-hmm. it's an absolutely stunning scene, and it's can't think about devastating, it. <laughs> and it's a beautiful, and all of those things all at once, which is my favorite thing to have those coexisting mm-hmm. contradictory emotions happening. But um, it's a really, it's a really great movie. I asked some people not to talk at the start of it. Yep, that was a new, a new thing for me. I, I've gotten very good at asking people to turn their iPhone watches off of Raise to Wake, iPhone watches, Apple watches, smart watches. Um, I've gotten really good at asking people to get off their cell phones, but asking people not to talk is kind of a trickier, scarier thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just this older pair who seemed like they were going to be offering their thoughts to each other quite loudly at every scene change. And this is my my general process with like, am I going to ask somebody to get off their phone is like if it once it happens three times i know it's not gonna stop because mm-hmm. sometimes i can be like okay well you're, it's dickish that you're doing this but maybe you just like really there was a text you really needed to, to come through or you're just like settling in and getting your phone put away kind of thing maybe, but once maybe they're buying a house maybe they're buying a house <laughs> but once it happens like three times i'm like oh you're not gonna stop so we actually read a movie a christmas movie that we decided not to cover this year because we'll cover it, we'll watch it again and cover it in the future and Christmas is past now, where I actually asked somebody with a group to ask their friends to stop going on their phone, to really shame them. Mm-hmm. I Also, I just couldn't get into the people who were on their phones because they were like in the seats. Mm-hmm. So I just said, could you ask your, your the people who are with you to stop going on their phones? Um, but in this case, I just went up to the folks and I said, I would, would you be able to try not to talk during the movie? I would really appreciate that. I just find it distracting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think they still did talk here or there, but they like tried really hard to be silent, like quiet, quiet, quiet. Yeah. I never heard them. You could just see them putting their heads together. So. Yeah. You're doing the Lord's work, Kylie, truly. Well, I also just believe that like, I think I do it with kindness, even if people feel ashamed, but like maybe you should. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm not mean about it. I'm not aggressive about it. I just kindly ask people to stop doing a thing and explain to them why I'd like them to, which is generally like I'm finding it distracting or I can see it or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and my hope is that that also is a reflection point for them and they maybe don't do that in the next showing, but also the more people who, who kindly ask people not to, not to talk, not to be on their phones, whatever it is, then maybe if a different person tells them that if they do it again the next time and it's, you know, it starts to become a pattern that they're being asked to put away their phones or being asked not to talk, mm-hmm. then hopefully they'll either just stop going to the movies or they'll stop doing that behavior. That's my hope. That's the hope. But it went well. I was nervous to ask people not to talk and it, and it went well. Talking is the thing that more than so than cell phone use, which people know is not the right thing to do in a movie theater where people can really turn on you quickly. Yeah. So I was I was nervous, but yeah, worked out in the end. I'm sure one day it won't. But yeah, but well, that's the day we get the staff and they get their asses booted out of the theater. Yeah, that's when no more niceties. I say, <laughs> well, this could have been easy, but now it will be a fight to the death. See you later, alligator. Um, Yeah, Iron Claw is beautiful. It affected me the longer that I've sat with it. It was beautifully shot. It had an amazing score. My least favorite part of it was the type choices in the end credits. I didn't notice, but I trust. Not not a great pairing. <laughs> Go back to the drawing board on that one. That's my only critique. But this was a pleasant surprise. I'm so glad that this movie that we wrote off so quickly ended up becoming one of the best movies I saw this year. How did the Iron Claw make you feel? It had my heart and emotions in the fullest of full Nelsons. How did it make you feel? Uh, it made me feel deeply moved by this tale of loss and cycle breaking. We each got a mystery movie pick in this week, and this one was mine. 
as playing that jealous of people who've already seen a movie by a director. So I'll watch an old movie by the director game again. And I picked 45 Years, a 2015 drama romance, apparently, um, directed and written by Andrew Haig and based on the short story by David Constantine. It stars Charlotte Rampling as Kate Mercer, Tom Courtney as Jeff Mercer, and Geraldine James as Lena. The synopsis is, a married couple preparing to celebrate their wedding anniversary receives shattering news that promises to forever change the course of their lives. What did you think of 45 Years? The, at this point, Andrew Haig's new film, All of Us Strangers, is coming out ideally at the end of this week. And the anticipation is unbearable at this point. So much so, we we're so looking forward to that movie that we previously did a top 10 of the year post on our Instagram at baddad.raddad last year. And we are postponing posting it until after we see All of Us Strangers. So the FOMO is super strong. I'm checking daily for all of us strangers to hopefully pop up so we can buy tickets. But I'm also excited that we're closing in on having seen all of Andrew Haig's feature films. We, I think we have one more other than all of us strangers to see. And I was looking forward to watching this. So when the title card came up, I was quite excited. What made you want to pick this one? Just of the of the two that are available to us. I mean, I don't know if Lean on Pete is on a streaming service. It might be. Mm. Uh, but this is what came up in my watch list first is something that I have access to. No, oh, nice. Um, I think it was a good length. And uh, Andrew Scott has mentioned it a couple times in press for all of us strangers. So I think it was just more top of mind. Mm. Um, I think I've just heard more about 45 years than I have uh, mm-hmm. Lean on Pete. Which is the, I mean, we really like Weekend. I don't think we've covered it on the the show, so we'll revisit it at some point. And we have mentioned on the show several times that Looking is one of our favorite uh, TV series of all time. Uh, We watched it week to week when it came out and we really loved it. And we've Mm -hmm. revisited it, I think, at least three times in full. And then restarted and not finished a few times, which is (laughs) our MO with TV lately. Um, But yeah, I just, it was a little bit more top of mind. And I think it's it's before Lean on Pete when you click on his filmography. Oh, <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, something that in the things we've seen of Andrew Higgs, and, and it's quite a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he hasn't made a lot of things, but we've seen most of what he's made. And what I've noticed is the through line is that he just has an ability to create such deep realism. Like the yes. relationships feel real. The conversations feel real. You know, he in everything I I've seen by him, he has a, he has sex scenes, and they always feel deeply real and have that like right mix of like tender and passionate, or or like whatever whatever it's true for those characters at that time, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to just be checking a box or you know giving people what they want. It's like no, this these characters having sex is actually and understanding what that sex is like for them is central to an understanding of the relationship between the characters. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just really like how honest his work feels. Mm -hmm. And that's true in this movie as well. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you. There was a couple thoughts that were rattling around my brain after this movie ended. And I just think that this is such a great example of what happens when a difficult dose of reality can rattle even the most seemingly content of lives. Like it seems like they're like these two folks are just living their most idyllic life. Mm-hmm. They're just reading books, going for walks, hanging with their dog. They've been together for 45 years. <laughs> they don't have, they don't have any children. So it's just like the, these two buddies being buddies. And then just like this, seemingly small thing comes in and it's not it's not like a tidal wave but it's just like these like small lapping waves that start coming in to sort of interrupt what their lives have become and what their lives are and it's and it's it's done so expertly yeah and it's you know it was interesting because I felt very frustrated with the character of Kate and you felt very frustrated with the character of Jeff. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it perhaps because we see some of, I think perhaps you're, you see some of your tendencies in Jeff and I see some of my tendencies in Kate. Mm-hmm. 
and and perhaps more so past tendencies, pre-therapy tendencies, mm. because you're right, it's not a tidal wave, and this thing that they find out, which is in some of the synopses of the of the film, but I kind of like not knowing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be the biggest deal. Yeah. But the reason it is, is because it's not something that they've talked about Mm -hmm. in any depth or with any real honesty, vulnerability, willingness to both speak about the messiness of the way they feel about it, even though they could have been speaking about that for 45 years. And they've settled into a routine, as we all do when we're in a relationship with somebody, of how we deal with conflict Mm -hmm. even if that conflict is something that comes up that maybe you've never spoken about or has ever come up you kind of default to how you approach that conflict and for them that approach is not talking about it yeah like it's just minimizing it even when it's it's not such a big deal but it is a big deal yeah like it, it has emotional weight for both characters in a very particular way and and you know i just thought so sadly that if this was something that they'd been speaking about for 45 years and it was kind of a constant, not constant, but, but, but a topic of conversation throughout their lives. And they both already spoken a lot about like how that makes them feel and, you know, the emotional weight of that, then actually this could, could be a moment of deep connection and support Mm -hmm. and like solidification of the strength of their bond and love for each other. And, Instead, it does the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt that Andrew Haig did such a good job of showing that, like, both people's, like, both Kate and Jeff's feelings are so valid, but both of them are going about it in a very cold and distant way. Yeah. Like, for both of them, it's like, I would rather downplay or squash these feelings down, whether it's to not hurt the other person more or to just have this be a point of conflict or anything instead of, yeah, like you're saying, actively acknowledge their feelings and share those with each other and not have it be necessarily a point of conflict, but a point of how to move forward with these feelings together. Mm -hmm. Like a point of connection, right? Exactly. And, you know, a big, a big, a big theme in this film is like the, how the past impacts the present. Mm-hmm. When I teach texts like this, I call it the persistence of the past and the present. Damn, that's some good alliteration. I know. But it's true. Like in real life, and when I, you know, I, I teach a lot of texts that have this theme, I think, because I find it so compelling that, mm-hmm. you know, I've been, uh, for the first time, I taught the novel Brother, which we've covered the show, the show, the movie, sound like a boomer, <laughs> the show. Um, on, we've covered the movie on our show. Uh, but that's a key part of brother is right by Michael distancing himself from the grief of his brother's death. He's actually made it impossible to heal because he pushes it down. He pushes it down. He pushes it down, but it always comes back. Mm-hmm. And rather than being prepared for how it comes back and willing to sit with those feelings of grief, he tries to run from it, which makes it more painful. And this movie is exploring a similar kind of thing, but in such a complexly quiet way. Yes. And I, I, think that the past is so important to the present and it impacts our future. But the characters in this film seem to have this understanding that like the past undoes everything. Yeah. Or like at least Kate does, right? Like knowing this thing undoes everything that's happened. And I'm like, that can be both true and also not so colossal. It can be, it can be true in a beautiful way mm-hmm. that without this thing having happened, you wouldn't have this beautiful relationship that has existed for 45 years. Well, it's so, it's, yeah, like it's so tricky because thinking about that, I think in this particular case, I think that you're absolutely right. But when something bad happens, like thinking about like the stuff that's happened with my dad in my Mm -hmm. family, the more recent things that have come to light and him doing what he did to break up my family, it has me reflecting back onto like who he was in the past and how I use that as a gauge for, for myself moving into the future. And while there's a part of me that's grateful because I feel like 
reflecting on those things has helped inform who I want to be and how I can grow from that. But it's also looking at the past. It's like, what was, what was true? What was not like, what did I misunderstand or was I misunderstanding? And that's the issue in this film is Kate's having those kinds of feelings. Although I think maybe this is just me being me, but I don't think what Jeff has not been talking about for the last 45 years is as insidious as an affair. Yeah. Right. Like he hasn't been intentionally lying to her. He just hasn't. I don't think he has been capable of talking about his deep feelings Mm -hmm. about things that happened before he met her. Right. Yeah. Um, But rather than like when you have a moment like that and, you know, thinking about your dad for you to work through that, and to have those questions answered in a way that would allow you to have a repaired relationship with him, he has to have that conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing here. In order for Kate and Jeff to move forward in connection and repair and healing from this you know, wound that has existed actually their whole relationship, they just haven't necessarily spoken about it. And Kate hasn't necessarily understood it in full. Jeff has to be willing to talk to her about it. Mm -hmm. And Kate has to be willing to talk about the messiness of what she feels while also being open to trusting what he says. But neither of them is willing to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so it just keeps the wound open, but covered. But it's not going to heal then. Um, This feels like a movie that would resonate even more and be even stronger on a rewatch, especially Mm -hmm. when you know where it's going. Because... The final shot of this film is just pretty intense. Yeah. And again, a very quiet way. Yeah. Like you're just like, oh, okay. Like this all like it feels like a quiet mystery film. Because things are kind of coming to light and you're discovering new things and you're not quite sure what to expect from each scene. But again, it's all set in this like really quiet reality. And I don't think I've seen many movies like this. Well, I think if this kind of thing happened in real life, that's what it would be like. It wouldn't be like an episode of True Detective or a season of True Detective, right? <laughs> right. Um, this is Andrew Haig's True Detective. <laughs> it, it, honestly, it is Andrew Haig's True Detective, <laughs> which is a very particular. If you like True Detective, you might not like this. <laughs> uh, there's a quote. I, I like a when a reviewer has said things in a way that are stronger than I can say them. So I really liked this. Uh, reviewer Mark Kermode wrote that the film is a quote subtle examination of the persistence of the past and the fragile instability of the present and that the lead performances are quote are that the lead performances quote turn an apparently everyday story of a marriage and quiet crisis into something rather extraordinary yeah it's a beautiful complex sad deeply human film that I actually think is a great reflection point for people in in relationship not just romantic relationship but relationship with anyone how do you have tough conversations and have that be a starting point for honoring the past how it's informed the presence and how you're going to move forward into the future together Mm -hmm. this is a great example of what not to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah how did 45 years make you feel mesmerized by this quiet human mystery how did it make you feel It made me feel reflective on the importance of honest vulnerability in relationships. Mm. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
Okay. We went back out to the theater and saw the 2023 comedy slash drama slash horror film, apparently, Dream Scenario. It was written and directed by Christopher Borgley. And it stars Nicolas Cage as Paul Matthews, Julianne Nicholson as Janet Matthews, Michael Sarah as Trent, Tim Meadows as Brett, and Dylan Galula as Molly. Synopsis. A hapless family man finds his life turned upside down when millions of strangers suddenly start seeing him in their dreams. When his nighttime appearances take a nightmarish turn, Paul is forced to navigate his newfound stardom. What do you think of Dream Scenario? Dream Scenario was tricky because when I initially saw the trailer, I was like, fuck yeah, that looks so good. I'm so excited for this. And then honestly, I didn't feel the need to rush out and see it when it first came out. Yeah, we and this was before I knew what anybody thought of it. We weren't gasping. No, even though the initial trailer I thought was really great. And then as people that we knew started seeing it, it was really split and not just you know. like, oh, some people thought it was mid and other people loved it. Like, no, it's like ha- some people are giving it like half stars and other people are giving it like five stars. Mm-hmm. Which when that happens, it tends to be more about the subject matter of the film and how it's handled as opposed to like the craft of the film. Right. Because I do think this film is well acted. Mm-hmm. Like I think everybody does a really good job of acting. I think there's some really strong moments of craft from like cinematography directing standpoint. I don't think the film is necessarily well narratively crafted. Like I, th- I agree with you. Like I think it does some pretty unique things within its story and with some of its visuals. I mean, we previously covered the director's film Sick of Myself, which was a whole experience in itself. So we were kind of like for me, I was kind of like, okay, I'm ready for a little bit of icky fiction. Like bring that on. There wasn't a ton here, but there was some digging into specifically this, the, the whole cultural phenomenon known as cancel culture. And I feel like that is kind of been the turning point for people in the film. Like once we start getting into sort of the exploration of that, that's what I'm seeing in a lot of reviews is kind of like the handling of that within the film. Some people think it's handled really well. Other people, they're like, I liked the film except for that. So like I'm going to give it three to three and a half stars out of five. Other people are like, I freaking hated that movie's bad. Mm -hmm. I just like, I personally just, didn't really understand what it was trying to say about that. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a hard time landing on it's horrible or it's amazing because it felt muddied. Like it just felt like, and, and I think a lot of how you feel about what the film is exploring. I don't know that I think the film is necessarily saying anything, but exploring about cancel culture um, is going to be informed by how sympathetic you feel the film is to the character of Paul. I personally don't think the film's sympathetic to him at all. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the film has a, takes issue with him. (laughs) I -hmm. think the film portrays him from the beginning as someone who, despite the way that these events unfold around him and heighten and heighten and heighten in a way that isn't always a direct result of things he's done he makes choices along the way that are the bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't know just how interested I am in that story is the thing. Like I, yeah. you know, as soon as I saw from some of our kind of trusted people that that's what the film was about, I was like, uh, I just don't know how much I care. Mm-hmm. Like it's not something I feel strongly about. I'm like, very lukewarm on caring about canceling. And I feel like you and I in our own lives try really hard to speak about folks who have either allegations of harm or very clearly have done harm. Um, We still try and speak about the art in a way that's informed by that um, or that at least acknowledges that Mm -hmm. and doesn't say, well, we hate this because of that or we're going to ignore it completely. And while we do make active choices sometimes to say, well, because of the harm this person has caused, I'm not going to support future projects. I don't necessarily feel like I'm embedded 
in cancel culture as a thing that needs to exist or needs to go away. I, I feel a little bit more complexly about it. And I yeah. don't think this film is complex enough. Yeah. That's kind of where the I car was better. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's where I kind of land too. Like I'm not sure at the end of this film, how I'm supposed to feel what I'm supposed to take away. It really just, it really kind of, I don't know how else to describe it. It froze me up emotionally. Like I, I don't know. Yeah. You just felt cold. Yeah. I'm just like, I don't know how I feel. I, this was, this had pockets of moments I enjoyed. Including Michael Sarah, He's great. I am here for the Mikey Sarah resurgence. Absolutely. But yeah, I just, I kind of left this movie with nothing. Yeah. Somebody that we follow on Letterboxd who I really trust their reviews said, I enjoyed watching it, but it's been a couple hours and it's completely washed off me. Like I don't have any feelings about it. Yeah. Like this is like, I don't feel strongly that I hated it. And I also don't feel strongly that I loved it. And I don't ever want to watch it again. And not because it was bad, but just because it was, this is what the kids call mid. (laughs) Yes. Truly, truly. And you know, I, I hate harping on this, but the best parts were shown in the trailer mm-hmm. and we saw the trailer several times. It's a good trailer. It's a really good trailer, but it like shows almost all of the like dream moments, which are the like best parts of the film and the most um, like uncanny Valley and the most kind of like surreal horror and the most like it's produced by Ari Aster and a lot of people are like, that's a big point for them, both um, for folks that think the movie's a mess they speak to because uh, Ari Aster was involved um, or what they liked about it. They feel like Ari Aster's influence is really in it. And I don't know how true that is, but um, this review, as I like to do, I think purpose perfectly captures how I feel about the movie. So it's Jeanette Castulis of the New York times um, wrote that this movie is quote, often funny and frequently surreal, but that the movie has, quote, more ideas than space to execute them, leading to a third act that feels overloaded and indecisive of where it wants to land. Perfect. Hit the nail on the head. Like, I think the first first two acts are quite good. And most reviews that I've seen from people that we follow on Letterboxd have been like, I was so on board with this movie for like 75% of it. Mm -hmm. And then it just lost me. Either like incredibly lost people thematically because they disagreed with the film, or like they just didn't, did not like what it had to explore in the way it doesn't really explore about cancel culture or just feeling like narratively it just, it just flails at the end. And mm-hmm. it's disappointing because I, I liked sick of myself. Um, it also made me think of, cause Julianne Nicholson is in brief interviews with hideous men, which is a movie I profoundly hate. Mm-hmm. I also profoundly hate the book. Um, I don't know which one I engaged with first, but I think I hated the movie more than I hated the book. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this kind of gave me some of those vibes. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of gross. Yeah. Uh, I hear you. I think we're both on the same page about this. this Mid. Yeah. And it's not, I don't think we're going to carry it with either one of us. I wouldn't. No deep dive on dream scenario. No, I wouldn't. That. I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, if you're interested for sure, but th- I think there's better stuff out there that you could definitely go check out, spend your time with. How to make you feel. It made me feel underwhelmed by the muddled thematics despite the interesting content. Yeah. How'd it make you feel? And overall, this is all rightness. Okay. Final movie of the show. (laughs) Whenever you say that, it sounds like we're never recording another episode ever again. (laughs) Final movie of the show. Um, And my last mystery movie pick of 2023 and I chose the 2014 adventure comedy crime film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. It was directed by Wes Anderson, and it's inspired by the writings of Stefan Zweig. Uh, the screenplay is by Wes Anderson, and the story is by Wes Anderson and Hugo Guinness. It stars a whole bevy of people, but uh, notably, Rafe Fiennes as Monsieur Gustave H. Or, I just, we really need to say this, as a <laughs> beloved but unnamed friend of ours once said with complete confidence, Ralph Fiennes. <laughs> Ralph Fiennes. As Gustav. <laughs> um, and Tony Revolori as Zero Mustafa. 
Adrian Brody as Dimitri, Willem Dafoe as J.G. Joplin, our most watched actor of 2023. Good old Willem Dafoe. Saoirse Ronan as Agatha, Tilda Swinton as Dowager, Countess Celine Veneuve, Deskoff, und Texas. <laughs> um, Edward Norton as Albert Henkels, Jeff Goldblum as Deputy Vilmos Kovacs, and as of this recording, the late Tom Wilkinson as author, as well as Jude Law as young author. There's a, there's a lot of other people too. Those are, those are some of our heavy hitters. Synopsis. A writer encounters the owner of an aging, high-class hotel who tells him of his early years serving as a lobby boy in the hotel's glorious years under an exceptional concierge. What do you think of Grand Budapest Hotel? And let's maybe recount the story of how we got to watching the Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. The story of how we got to watching the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's a Saturday. We've had a couple pretty long days. Nice long days, but long days. And neither of us are the most extroverted of people. So just over the holidays, it's been a lot of having, it's been a lot of gatherings that require being on and seeing a lot of different people. Some people who we only see once a year. Um, And we were tired and a little cranky and wanting to not go to bed super late. And so you had picked a two hour movie, but then we didn't get to it right away. So you were like, okay, I'm going to pick a shorter movie. And you put on the movie Cow. And I quite audibly said, really, you picked this? Because, well, first of all, I didn't feel like 1030 p.m. was a time for a documentary. I also like didn't really know much. about No, you it. clearly didn't, because I was like, this is going to be a profoundly upsetting movie and we're tired and we're cranky. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't want to further the discord after you had already picked another new movie. So we just started watching it. And we're profoundly, both of us, I think, were profoundly upset. Like, I literally thought that I was going to, like, explode into, like, just angry tears. Yeah. I, like, couldn't handle it. (laughs) Yeah. It was profoundly upsetting. And I think as you put in your letterbox review for Grand Budapest, that animal harm, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, is just the hard no for both of us. Well, so, so it's a little bit of a caveat. And we've talked about this on the show before, but it's, Animals that were truly harmed in the making of a film, whether that film is fiction or nonfiction. So I'm actually fine. I'm okay if a fake animal gets harmed. Like if a CGI animal gets harmed or what was very clearly an animatronic. Like if if in the story an animal is killed or hurt, but it didn't really happen to an animal, I can handle it. Yeah, don't like seeing it, but... It's the same with a human. Like I'm, I'm okay watching a horror movie where somebody gets their throat cut, but if that was a real snuff film, I would not want to see it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so same kind of thing. And I knew this movie was going to be upsetting because I, I knew that it was the like a life of a dairy cow. Mm-hmm. And as people who used to be vegan and are lapsed, but still very, very, very firmly vegetarian and have been for over a decade. Um, I already know that lives of dairy cows are awful. Mm-hmm. We also live in a dairy cow province. Mm-hmm. Um, but watching it sucked. Yes. And we didn't even get into when I think it gets more profoundly upsetting. We were barely into it. I couldn't handle seeing a calf get tagged. Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck are we doing tagging living creatures? I don't know. Anyway, that's my, that's my vegetarian. Well, and then we looked up like where the rest of the film goes and I'm really grateful that we turned it off when we did. Yeah. You, you've, I mean, I, you could tell I would, you, Elliot, could tell that I was getting pretty upset and you were like, we can turn it off. And then I was like, no, let's just keep watching it. You picked it, but it's going to be upsetting. And then and then you, I think you were very upset and you were like, I don't want to watch this anymore. And I was like, okay, well, thank God, because yeah. I don't want to watch it anymore either. Because <laughs> I as well know what happens in dairy farms. So I'm just like, if this is already upsetting, I know where this is going to go. I don't want, I don't, I don't need more of this. I no. know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and after reading, after you told me what happens in the rest of the film yeah i don't and i don't need to see it and the whole like ethics and the conversation around how the film came to be and everything is stuff that we don't agree with and yeah i think just shoving a camera in the face of anybody who can't any living creature that can't consent to it which includes children Mm -hmm. for the record and we've talked about that how we feel really 
complicated about child actors, especially young child actors. Like how much can you really consent? Not to the making of the film, perhaps you can very, very much consent to that, but the longer term consequences emotionally, socially of, of being in a film yeah. and, and the consent for that. And personally, I don't think a cow can consent to having a camera shoved in its face for four years. Yeah. So, and we already just have- so that some people can feel like they either think, Oh wow. Cows have more in common with us than I thought. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what the point of it is. And yeah, I'm just not a person who needs to see suffering to feel empathy yeah. personally in any living being. Um, we don't need to go on about it more. Yeah. We but didn't, we, we didn't watch it. it. Yeah, we stopped. And uh, one of my trusted letterbox friends who has seen it said, good call. <laughs> Commented on my review of Grand Budapest and said, good call in, in turning that off. So then you, I set you up on a letterbox list called Good Movies 90 Minutes or Less, less and somehow you found a 92-minute movie on it. I wanted to watch something lighter. <laughs> Good choice. Um, and so, yeah, I, I chose Grand Budapest Hotel, which we hadn't revisited since seeing it in the theater back in 2014. So it's been a hot minute. And we've talked often about revisiting it, but we just haven't. Yeah, and revisiting it now... I think you made this comment, but I can totally see why this is so many people's favorite Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Because I feel like this is a combination of kind of the best of Wes Anderson. Like it feels like the most solid blend of his earlier films with what you and I specifically like about Fantastic Mr. Fox in terms of the humor, the music, the storytelling. And it all coalesces really nicely here. And I think that it is one of his most beautiful films. It, it's also dabbling in some really silly fun, some true beauty, but also some sadness. Hmm. And it all works so well. It's not my favorite. I think that'll always be fantastic. Mr. Fox. Cause just every, everything, all the stars aligned with that movie. And there are a couple things I'm not going to harp on them, but a couple things I, I, don't love about this movie one is there is no female character of any real consequence mm-hmm. like Saoirse Ronan I remember like just the conversation about her being a big deal when this movie first came out she's barely in the movie yeah um and 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 when she's in it she's great but she's just not narratively hefty mm-hmm. I think it's a really odd choice to have F. Murray Abraham, that's his name? Yeah. Play older Zero, just ethnicity-wise, I feel like that's strange. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to harp about that. Um, and there's some homophobic slurs that I just don't feel are necessary. It's a very funny line about bisexuality that I liked. Yeah. But I don't think some of the... And this was something that... um. I, I'm not interested in revisiting the French Dispatch, but I believe that there was racial slurs in that. And it's just like, dude, it's it's the late two, it's like the two, late 2010s. Why are we using these words? Yeah, you're a good writer. There's other words to use. Yeah. Um. So a couple of things that I was just like, this is not going to be a five out of five for me mm-hmm. ever. What is a five out of five for me is old Ralph Fiennes. Ralph Fiennes. He is. First of all, he's a very handsome man. Mm hmm. He's so funny in this. Yeah, truly great. And the putting him together with Tony Revolori, the two of them are just pure magic together. Really, really like good buddy comedy vibes. Yeah. The two of them. Yeah. And it's it's so it's so sad. And I didn't I don't think I realized. Maybe it's like a subconscious thing, but we watched this on the day that Tom Wilkinson passed away. So it was like also just kind of this level of sadness that that was because you had mentioned that to me as soon as he was on screen. It's like, did you pick this? Cause he passed away. I'm like, I had no idea he passed away. That was really sad. He's been in quite a few things that I, I like. So getting to watch this as a, like a little bit of a celebration was nice. I think that the music by Alexandre Desplat was a particular standout on this viewing. Like it's so, it's, it has so much of the vibe of what he did for Fantastic Mr. Fox, 
but I feel like this kind of dials, dials it up even more and it's so full of whimsy and it's just like the perfect accompaniment to this purely Wes Anderson adventure. I'm, I'm totally with you. Like, I don't think this will ever be a five out of five for me. And I don't think I would necessarily revisit it often or a ton or anything. But my biggest takeaway from it is Ralph Fiennes. <laughs> to be clear, we do know his name is Ray Fiennes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, he is absolutely perfect, hilarious, charming. And there's a line in this movie that I quoted in my letterbox review, which is quite possibly one of the most beautiful lines written ever mm-hmm. in anything used twice in the film in really profound ways. And I think actually very fitting as the film that you picked after DNFing cow for highly specific reasons. I really loved that aspect of the film. This is also Wes Anderson's most like critically acclaimed film. So it was nominated for a ton of Academy Awards. Hmm. It was nominated for best picture, best director, best original screenplay, best cinematography, best film editing. And then it won these awards. So it didn't win those. It was nominated for and won the following Best original score, best production design, best makeup, hairstyle, best costume design. Mm. Like it won a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's by far his most nominated film. It's beautiful. Yeah. Like it's the color palette is perfection. The, The Wes Anderson of it all works so well in this film. And I think we kept joking that it's a story within a story within a story within a story. But I think that the kind of like artificiality and the um, purposeful woodenness of the way he films and the way he directs the actors to line read works best when it's within a purposefully artificial confine like Fantastic Mr. Fox or like a story within a story within a story within a story. Mm -hmm. And it works not quite as well for me when it's meant to be realism. So it also works really well for me in Asteroid City when it's like a play is this maybe a play? Is this maybe not a play? Like kind of thing, right? When he, mm-hmm. when Wes Anderson himself is acknowledging within the film the artificiality of story. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work as well in French Dispatch for me. I didn't like French Dispatch. <laughs> yeah, which is again using a similar device of like stories within a story. But but that one is um, it's like short stories more, and it, they're it, not they I don't. I don't really remember, but I don't feel like they connect to each other. Uh, I can't remember, but I feel like it's not reveling in the whimsy as much as something like Grand Budapest. Yeah. Yeah. Like this feels like it's no surprise to me that Wes Anderson loves Roald Dahl books and and then has, has recently, we haven't watched them, but done these like short films based on Roald Dahl stories and that this um, film was inspired by like a writer and a series of his works, which kind of became the impetus for creating this piece. So I think he works so well when he plays in that field, but then makes it his own. I mean, Wes Anderson at this point is like almost caricature Mm -hmm. because of Instagram and TikTok. But I still found this film really, really charming. We asked ourselves when we were watching it, is Willem Dafoe having the most fun in Hollywood? (laughs) I think he is. No, between poor things and this and... Uh, Spider-Man and yeah is he just having so much fun and I think the answer is yes yeah watching interviews with him it just seems like that's his jam he's just like I want the opportunity to do this I want to do this and people are asking me to do these things sure (laughs) nice yeah I'll be there I have to read you this quote because uh Ray Fiennes was such a wonderful point in this film he did so good none of what I said was very thoughtful there but (laughs) not great words but I loved this. This is from Wikipedia. So it's not direct. It's a direct quote from Wikipedia, but it's not necessarily a direct quote from these people. But I would like to believe that it is. So Wikipedia says, quote, Anderson desired an English actor to play Gustav and uh, Fines was an actor he sought to work with for several years. Fines, surprised by the offer, was eager to depart from his famously villainous roles and found Gustav's panache compelling. Mm. I love that. His panache. Yeah. I, that he has panache. In, in bundles. He, he's such a great character and the he holds this movie down and it's such a fun journey to go on with him. Yeah. Who would have thought Voldemort? 
Ralph Fiennes. He's a great concierge. <laughs> the best. How, how did Grand Budapest Hotel make you feel? I mean, particularly in the context of the movie that we stopped watching. But in general, it's just, it makes me feel a comforting, charming balm. Mm. You? Uh, it just made me feel wrapped up in silly whimsy. All right, let's talk about some dads. Felt real complicated about picking a, a bad dad. I went back and forth a few times. Okay. But I ended up uh, landing on Paul Matthews from Dream Scenario. Like the same person. Nice. I mean, uh, I'm assuming the complication comes from potentially picking someone based on a real person. Correct. So I just stayed away from that. No. <laughs> tricky. A tricky, tricky. But I think Paul Matthews actually is the correct choice. Tell me a little bit about why you picked Paul. I, j- I just think that he's profoundly selfish and that he his efforts to quote unquote connect with his family he, he's going about it in a very unapproachable way and in a way that doesn't make his family want to connect with him and i I'd, I'd say that would go with all of the other people in his in his life is that he is so set in his ways and so stubborn that what he knows and the way that he goes about about things is the right way and doesn't and chooses to not look outside of himself which um, in terms of a parent, <laughs> no, thank you. How about you? Yeah, I just said like his his own lack of confidence in himself and his own worth ultimately leads him to just having completely insincere relationships with everyone around him, with mm-hmm. his family, with his students, with his work, um, and then with new people he kind of meets along the way. And then he just is unable to take accountability for how his own thoughts about himself in the world have played parts in what is happening around him, which is what compounds how the world treats him. Um, And I think ultimately it's his failings that lead to this, not anything else. Um, And I don't like him. Nope. (laughs) No, thank you. So Paul Matthews, don't don't be be our dad. dad. Who's your dad? I picked zero. Oh. From the Grand Budapest Hotel. Nice. Um, young, you know, both zeros, all zeros. There's something about the character of zeros, like sincerity and gusto. Yeah. Um, as a younger person, this like, I'm going to be the best lobby boy that's ever existed. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the way that once he binds emotionally and in like camaraderie, and cahoots with mm. Gustav that he's fully committed to that. He's committed to his like love for Stream Agatha. Yes. Um, he's committed to his friendship with Gustav. Um, he's committed to his job, but yet he also seems to consistently stay true to himself. It's like those things don't supersede who he is, but he is deeply in like connected to those people and places and, and responsibilities And then when you look at him as an adult, how that sincerity, that gratitude, that loyalty, that commitment continues through. And even in the way that he so like lovingly tells the story to the character of the author. And particularly when we get that like final answer to like the question of like, why? I won't say anything more about that. Like it's such a beautiful reason. And I just thought like that all of those qualities are good parental qualities. Mm hmm. I love that. Uh, I stuck very close and I said Monsieur Gustave. I thought about it, but I think he's kind of a cad. (laughs) I mean, he certainly can be, but I felt like he was a really good example of found fatherhood. Like, I feel like he found it in himself as we follow him through his journey in the film and his relationship with Zero. And it's this sort of growing and caring father-like love that I feel comes comes up in him while also staying true to himself. Like, yes, he can be doinky-doinky, but I feel like for the people that he truly cares about or that are important to him, he values them, and he values where where they sit in his life. And he has, like, this very beautiful confidence <laughs> that... Sometimes could get a bit of hot water, but it is in many cases quite admirable and can be quite beautiful. 
what if we co-rad-dadded? Co they right. kind of are a beautiful team. And I think they really both learn from each other. Yeah. Like, I think Zero helps to make Gustav more grounded mm -hmm. um, and more empathetic mm -hmm. and reflective on, like, his own. There's a, there's a great but also, like, kind of tricky moment when... Like the prejudice of Gustav comes up and Zero kind of like slaps him in the face with like, ah, check yourself, my guy. Mm -hmm. And and he apologizes for that. But then I think on the other side of things, Gustav really teaches Zero like confidence and standing up for yourself and the people that, that matter to you. And yeah, I think that they could be co-dads. I think they both find fatherhood and they both inspire that in each other. Beautiful. Okay, well, I guess Gustav and Zero. Be our dads. Okay, Rad Wreck. Head into the new year. So we've already alluded to this, but DNF things if they're not your bag. Yeah. You know, and, and in many different ways, like DNF it if it's boring as shit. <laughs> yeah. DNF it if now's not the time for it. Mm -hmm. Right? If it's like, you know, I've watched about 15 minutes of this and I just don't think today's the day. Um, DNF it if it is upsetting you morally. Mm -hmm. Many different reasons. But, you know, life is short. And there's so much good art, so many good people, so many good experiences to have. Movies are only getting longer. So. Movies are only getting longer. <laughs> so if you like, if you're giving it a fair shot and you're like, not today or not ever, DNFing's cool. Mm-hmm. I used to be somebody that I'm like, oh, I have to finish every book that I start. And I'm like, if I'm not enjoying it, why would I finish it? Yeah. Doesn't mean I might not try and revisit it later. And we, we don't DNF often. Mm -hmm. The recommendation is not DNF everything. Mm -hmm. But it's, a, it's, it's okay and cool to DNF when the time feels right. Yeah. DNF when it feels right for you. DNF when it feels right for you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and sign into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek at what we've, been, what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. We would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people that are in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these lobby boys this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Bye.